Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah. On the show today, we're talking about Valle de Oro, a 570-acre wildlife refuge in Albuquerque's South Valley. You may already be familiar with Valle de Oro. It is kind of a big deal. It is the first urban wildlife refuge in the Southwest. It is the first wildlife refuge with an explicit mandate to promote environmental justice. So we're going to take you behind the scenes at Valle de Oro as part of our Road to 30 Postcards series. We're highlighting local conservation movements across the West. We're really excited to tell you more about the refuge, how it came about, and its future. But first, Kate's got some news for us. Yep, I do. We may be coming up on the holidays, but this was a big week for news. Joe Manchin went on Fox News bright and early on Sunday and said there's basically no way he's going to vote for the Build Back Better Act. And that's after months of negotiations essentially aimed at making the West Virginia senator happy. The White House was quick to attack Manchin, calling him two-faced and blaming him for sinking the Democrats' big chance at tackling important social safety net issues along with climate change. Of course, as we pointed out in a statement on Sunday, the administration can still do a whole lot to address the climate crisis by advancing new rules regarding drilling and leasing on public lands. So we will see if they continue playing this game of cat and mouse with Congress or if they acknowledge the reality that you have to step up to the plate administratively and start to take action there. Yep. Speaking of the Biden administration, it also put out a progress report on its America the Beautiful initiative. The report came out on Monday, and it's a pretty comprehensive list of everything the administration has done so far to improve the health of America's lands and waters. It includes obvious actions like restoring Bears Ears and Grand Staircase National Monuments, and less obvious ones like the creation of the Tribal Homelands Initiative, which strengthens the role of tribes in the management of federal lands. Overall, it's a good report, and it sets the stage for some major conservation efforts, like the establishment of new national monuments. We're excited to see what next year brings, and we encourage President Biden to listen to locals who are calling on him to conserve their backyards, like the ones in our Road to 30 postcards series. And now, without further ado, let's hear from some folks who were successful in getting their backyard turned into a national wildlife refuge. We've got a full house today to discuss how the refuge came to be and how it benefits both people and animals. Jennifer Owen White is the current manager of the Valle de Oro Wildlife Refuge. David Barber is the president of Friends of Valle de Oro, a nonprofit that helped establish the refuge. And Richard Moore is an environmental justice activist and a coordinator for a nonprofit called the Los Jardines Institute, which also helped establish the refuge. Welcome, everybody. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, thank you very much for, for the invite. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. So, Richard, the refuge is located in Albuquerque's South Valley and specifically the Mountain View community. I've read that there is a heavy industrial presence in that neighborhood, which was a key factor in the push for this refuge. Can you introduce yourself and tell us about the Mountain View neighborhood where you live? Uh, yes, my name is Richard Moore. Um, I'm with Los Jardines Institute, the Gardens Institute. Uh, and the Gardens Institute is an environmental and economic justice grassroots institute located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The South Valley community was a very vib- a vibrant uh, community at one point. Um, agriculture, uh, uh, beautiful uh, acequias, um, 
And uh, there was a lot of uh, growth originally uh, in the Mountain View community. As I said, people had uh, gardens. Uh, some people were were ranching or they had animals. Others had uh, small farms or small gardens. Um, and so uh, the South Valley, the next door neighbor to the to the Mountain View community is the Pueblo of Isleta. Um, and so the original land of the Tiwa people is where the Mountain View community is located. Uh, so having a, a neighbor, uh, which is a Pueblo here in Albuquerque, was historically very significant, the relationship between the Pueblo and uh, what became uh, the community of Mountain View. Uh, I think one of the very crucial things to understand uh, about the Mountain View community is that um, it's largely Latino, um, or some refer to it as Hispanic. And uh, Mountain View today has become an industrial site. Uh, we're surrounded uh, to the south uh, by industrial facilities. It was housing the largest poultry farm or chicken farm um, in Albuquerque. And then to the to the east, uh, it also houses uh, the, the municipal sewage plant, and it also have a fairly large hog farm. And then additionally, we're surrounded by the petrochemical facilities, tank farms. We housed at one point a uh, racetrack, car racetrack uh, that was there. Um, it's downhill from two other in, uh, facilities. One is Kirtland Air Force Base, and then the other one is Sandia National Labs. Uh, so this community has today been surrounded by various uh, environmental and economic justice uh, injustices, I will say that. Um, and so then we have water water contamination issues, or I've had water contamination issues. Uh, we've also had air contamination issues by many of the facilities. And so the struggle of the community of Mountain View has been historically been going on for 30 or 40 or more years. Um, and part of the goal of the residents of Mountain View is to clean up uh, to clean up the community, as we say, to make our community whole again. Thank you. David, could you tell us a little bit about Friends of Valle de Oro and um, how you guys sort of were involved in the creation of the refuge? Sure. Um I, I happen to be the president of the Friends, and I also sit on the board for the Mountain View Neighborhood Association, which is the community the refuge is in. And uh, the Price family owned a dairy farm where we currently are, and it was 570 acres. And when it came time to sell the property, um, several of the neighbors got wind of the upcoming sale and the people that were lining up looking to buy the property and what they were looking to do with it. And there was, there was all sorts of developers trying to come in from your usual um, housing projects to uh, they wanted to move the horse racetrack down from the state fair. They wanted to, one of the ideas was to expand the wastewater treatment facility onto that property. And um, just, any number of different things that were not going to set well with the community. And as Richard was alluding to, um, this community has a long, long history. 
In fact, when they when they redid the elementary school several years ago, some of those buildings that were demolished to be replaced were well over 100 years old. And um, back to how the refuge came to be or the friends came to be, there was a group of neighbors started looking at the developers and started looking at the neighborhood and decided, you know, we really don't want any of these in our backyard. We Mountain View is a community of dirty industry already, and we don't want to add any more to that. And so there was a couple of folks came together and started a strong grassroots campaign and started getting the neighbors involved and started talking to folks like the county and the city and the state and several numerous other major contributors about the land and how uh, the Price family would prefer to leave it green space, open green space, and that you know we really didn't want a whole bunch of, of housing or a wastewater treatment facility to come in. And so they worked for several years and, and fortunately the Price family was willing to wait because they didn't want to see it be developed either. And like I said, they worked for several years um, garnering the support of everybody that they could think of and talk to and um, eventually were able to start raising money. And uh, to my knowledge, our friends group was the first friends group for a National Wildlife Refuge that was ever established before the refuge was actually established. And it took the, the group it, several years to even convince Fish and Wildlife that they wanted to have a refuge on the property and be part of the neighborhood. And then once that happened, the fundraising uh, became really serious. Um, and over a course of time, they raised just short of $19 million to purchase all the property. And part of the reason the, the purchase price was so high was that the land came with the senior water rights, which if you're, if you're here in the arid Southwest, you understand how critical that is. Um, and it's, it's a huge deal and they're, they're very expensive. Um, but since then, the Friends has been involved with almost every aspect of the refuge. We are the nonprofit support group to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Managed Refuge. And we help out in areas with different things that U.S. Fish and Wildlife won't allow their employees to do. And it's, it's federal guidelines nationwide. It's not specific to this refuge. Um, but we're, we're there to support them and help them with their events and their functions and, and whatever else it is that we can help raise money for and help to get accomplished and finished on the refuge. Jennifer, I'm curious what it's been like for you coming into a refuge that is new, first of all, and really came about because of this level of community support and at the same time has this explicit mission to serve both wildlife and people. How, how does that work and how is that different from a, a, a traditional, uh, perhaps older wildlife refuge? Well, I... I will have to say, I think it's it's been an amazing experience. And I think it's really colored the way that I look at refuge management. And I think even within Fish and Wildlife Service, the way that we look at refuges and our relationship to our communities. As Dave and Richard have said, um, 
it was the community who really advocated for establishing this refuge. So when I came in as the first staff member about nine months after the refuge had been established, we already had so many partner organizations and community members who had been fighting for this for years and who were connected to the land, connected to the wildlife and the plants. And so I realized early on that my job was to um, basically work for my community, to be a facilitator, to help the community members who fought so hard to protect this refuge um, realize their vision for this area. And so we were really lucky that Valle de Oro was established as the first refuge under the Urban Wildlife Conservation Program. Um, we're the first new refuge under this initiative for Fish and Wildlife Service that really sees people and the land and wildlife as an integrated system. This idea that we need to work together to conserve land, but that we're not separate from it. And that um, you know, 80% of the U.S. population lives in and around cities. And so if we're not working with community members, we're missing a huge aspect of um, what we could be accomplishing by systemically excluding communities. Um, we're really doing a detriment to our conservation mission and our conservation work. So I would say I was inspired by our community members who were so passionate and had such vision and strength for this land. Um, and then that allowed us to um, take these ideas that Fish and Wildlife, that our agency was trying to do, and really with other refuges across the country, build this idea of what it means to do community-based conservation to, to work together. And I, I can't think of um, as long as I, I work in my career, I will never, never look at conservation a different way. Um, it will always be about the community's involvement and partnership and hand in hand sharing that work to create a, a vision together. Give us some examples. What does that look like in practice, uh, both from a wildlife and a community standpoint? Well, I think, you know, one of the big examples was when I when I first showed up, um, one of the things that community members put on my desk within the first week was this plan that they had worked on with the University of New Mexico for Second Street, which is the road that goes the primary road through the Mountain View community um, that also leads to the refuge, to Valle de Oro. And the neighbors were concerned about the safety of the road. There were no sidewalks and many people in our neighborhood um, walk to get places. We have a, a large family homeless shelter in our neighborhood and, and, and those uh, people are walking wherever they're going. And so um, the road was sort of unsafe um, and there's a lot of industrial facilities in our neighborhood. And so there was noise pollution and air pollution and, and our neighbors wanted to have some buffer from that. And so I showed up and there was this document on my desk that said, here's what the community's vision is for Second Street. Um, and because we're a federal agency and we're a wildlife refuge, we were eligible for some funding through the Federal Lands Access Program, which gave us money to redo Second Street. 
um, and to make it safer for our neighbors, to put in a hike and bike trail, which connected people to the refuge, to put in native landscaping that, of course, not only provides for the wildlife, but also creates a buffer, does a little bit for air quality um, and, and sound buffering um, and, and, and integrates that refuge feel throughout um, the neighborhood but then sidewalks for people to walk on and lighting. Um, and we were able to do dark sky friendly lighting. So there are things that were good for our recreation and conservation mission, but that were what the community asked for in order to be safe and to have access throughout the neighborhood. Um, I'd say another example is also in my first week on the job, I met Richard and Richard came up to me at an event and was very clear with me and asked me some very pointed questions about how I was going to work for the community, how I was going to make sure that the people who had done generations of grassroots work in this area would be respected and involved in the process to create this refuge. And so from the beginning, this environmental justice foundation for Valle de Oro was built and it was something that that our neighbors had been involved with for a long time that the refuge was able to take on and integrate into our conservation work environmental justice we we have a an environmental justice plan at the national level but those hadn't often been stepped down to the local level and so we are the first as far as we know, public land site in the country who has their own environmental and economic justice strategic plan, which not only um, addresses the goals of uh, the community to be involved in the process, early, meaningful, and ongoing involvement in decisions that impact their lives, but also uh, uplifts our goal of habitat restoration and um, conservation of land and water and wildlife. Yeah, you said something in the High Country News article that, I, that has really stuck with me, which is that the things that are good for animals are often good for people and vice versa. And I thought that was just a really elegant way to summarize what you guys are doing there. Yeah, oftentimes, you know, maybe traditionally in conservation, we've looked at ourselves as separate from the environment. And, and what, we're, what we're doing now is this idea that we are all connected. And, you know, sometimes people may say, well, why are you doing a, a road access project? Or why are you doing a stormwater drainage project? Well, um, by helping to prevent flooding in an industrial neighborhood, we're not only protecting our neighbors, but we are using that water to create habitat for wildlife, using vegetation to clean that water and put more clean water in the system. And so these are great examples of, yeah, what's good for wildlife is, is good for people. And what's good for people can be really great for wildlife because we're all connected. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Richard, I want to ask you this question. Do you think that Valle de Oro could be a model for other wildlife refuges? Like, do you think this could be replicated in other parts of the country? I mean, I think very clearly it, it could be. And to, I think to some extent it is. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is because uh, we have we have visitors uh, that come to visit the refuge um, from all over this country. Uh, 
um, and in some cases from outside the country. Um, and I think that uh, that that having people understand um, that this is your refuge, I think that's very very important. Not only is the community hosting it, but this is your refuge, and that you need to be involved in all the decision making around the refuge, and then at the same time dealing with the federal government. Um, then the VDO um, is one of those primary uh, refugees or parks, as I said, that, that, that has the only existing environmental and economic justice strategy attached to it. Uh, so other refuge uh, staff had visited um, VDO. Um, we've had youth groups uh, from Houston and other areas that have uh, parks or potential parks if they're cleaned up um, in other communities. Uh, that could uh, that could addi- additionally help to make uh, their communities uh, a viable uh, community, a, a vibrant community. Um, and so, very clearly, as I said, um, we've had visitors. Um, we've had visitors from other refuges, from other parks. We've had youth groups. We've had other groups come. And then the I think the uniqueness of the refuge itself um, and its next door neighbor uh, being the pueblo. Um, so then based upon that, the engagement of the Pueblo, of the leadership, the tribal council of the Pueblo, the members of, of, the, of the village of Isleta um, have been very, very crucial to this endeavor. So I think it's been a learning lesson for the federal government, particularly Department of Interior through the Fish and Wildlife Services. Um, there's a, This is a new moment, uh, just to put it that way. And so, uh, so this very clearly is being looked at um, as a premier uh, refuge uh, within the within the refuge systems. Hmm. David, do you have any favorite memories or places within the refuge that you could tell us about? I live in the neighborhood, and actually, um, I, I worked in the construction industry. And early on in my career, there was a large project down at the at the uh, uh, dairy farm and worked on it, and that was in the early 80s. And so I, my, my connection with the Price's property goes back a long ways. Um, but I always remember it being very green and lush and, um, you know, because they grew a lot of alfalfa and uh, different crops for the animals. Um, you know, and they, they took real good care of the property, you know, and, and knew that they were in a neighborhood that would appreciate the fact that they didn't just let it go. Um, and I, I just I just remember it being so peaceful and calm and green and pretty and lush and you know just a just a good place to be. Awesome. Well, that's a good transition to a question I have for you, Jennifer, which is can you describe the process of taking a piece of land um from a dairy farm to a wildlife refuge and what goes into sort of rewilding um the refuge? Yeah. So it it really is a a big process. So this land has been in farming for over a century. And so it's been intensively farmed and laser leveled and tilled and flood irrigated. And so to return it to native habitat is a ton of work. But just like anything else that we've done um, on the refuge, it really started with the community engagement and involvement. And so asking our neighbors and our community members, what 
what's important about their personal connection to the land? Uh, what do they remember about um, being in this community? And what's so important about wildlife and plants to them? And what would they like to do on this property? And so we took community input, and then we worked with uh, many of our science-based and conservation-based partners, uh, hydrologists and environmental engineers um, and ecologists, and we put it all together. And I often say that it's not my job to create this refuge or design this refuge. It's my job to take our community's ideas and vision and then to work with our partners to basically take that community vision and put it together with sound science and engineering to create something that's sustainable for wildlife and for people. And so it really is this long process and an iterative process. We we come up with some ideas, we incorporate some science and some um, some engineering to figure out how to do it. And we reflect it back to our community to make sure it it meets the vision that they had thought. And, and as we start the actual process of rewilding this land, um, we want to, to, to try new things. And sometimes they're going to work, but sometimes they're not going to work how we thought they would. And we have to evaluate and adapt and really use adaptive management. So Ultimately, the goal is to meet our community's needs, to meet our wildlife and conservation needs by creating this mosaic of middle Rio Grande habitats, things that would have been here naturally by looking at the soil types and the groundwater and the surface water um, and and really creating something that's holistic. Uh, But it's a really big process because as I said, it's been a hundred years or more in intensive management in farming. And now we're trying to reverse that and, and make a change. Um, but we're not doing it alone. Wow. It sounds like a really, really complex process that you guys are um, engaging in. And it's really impressive to see that it's working because I know it can be hard to integrate many perspectives and um, science and come up with something that's actionable. You know, people think that Valle de Oro is small, right? We're 570 acres. We're a little less than a square mile. And we're, we're very small compared to other national wildlife refuges. We've got some amazingly huge national wildlife refuges out there. Um, and you might think, oh, this is a small refuge. It's easy. But when you're building things from the ground up, hand in hand with community, partnership and collaborative based work, um, 570 acres, changing every inch of that, every acre of that becomes a a huge project. Um, David, I I wanted to ask you actually about how your role has changed since you began sort of advocating for this refuge. And now I imagine you're a big part of the planning process. So if you're still with us, I'd love to hear your answer to that. Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. We have, we have a absolutely magnificent working relationship with Jennifer and her staff. Everything is always positive. Uh, we are involved, if not daily, uh, at least on a weekly basis in, in one-on-one meetings and discussions about um, what needs to happen and, and procedures that we need to look at. 
Uh, we're in the process of redoing. There's an actual agreement between the friends and the fish and wildlife that dictates, you know, what we can and can't do and, and vice versa. Um, it's, it's a very positive relationship. And uh, we are there, like I said earlier, to support them. And we do everything within our possible means and guidelines to help with whatever they, they need to do. You know, for example, Jennifer talked about the Outdoor Education Center. Um, we're, we're very involved in the design process of that, and um, they, they give us ample opportunity to make suggestions and comments on what the design looks like and you know, if, if we think that that's going to work or not. So, um, and, it's, and it's been that way. I've been involved four years now, and it's been that way from day one. And you couldn't, you couldn't ask for a better group to work with. So, Richard, what are your hopes for the future of the refuge and the neighborhood? We're very excited about the when when things are being able to visitor center, and we're being uh, able to to open in a larger a larger context. When the virus came down, uh, we had to postpone the opening of the visitor center. When people have the opportunity to visit uh, the refuge, then this visitor center will be somewhat unique. Um, it will talk about the history um, of the land uh, before it became a refuge. Uh, so that's, as I said, uh, the land being located on primarily Tiwa territory. Um, and so there'll be that history. Um, some of that history will be in the visitor center. Um, I think within the architectural designs, um, there'll be a, a small amphitheater um, that uh, we'll be able to have uh, music and poetry and different seminars and outside workshops and so on. Um, that's additionally very, very, very crucial. Um, so it's exciting. We're waiting for that, uh, we'll say, grand opening, although the, 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 the refuge has been open. Um, and it will be a place for us um, that have lived there, for those that have historically lived there, um, it'll be that unification point uh, where we come together, we share ideas, uh, we, we sing together, we learn together, we cry together, we celebrate together, and we keep on moving. It's a really inspiring story, and um, I hope that, and I'm sure that we will see more examples of this in other cities throughout the U.S. soon. So thank you so much for, for sharing the background of this amazing refuge. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for for letting us share this story um, and and you know talking with you. I think it's always fun when we get to to talk about the work that we're doing. We sometimes have our heads down and are so in it that we don't get to to talk about where we've been and where we're headed. And so this is always a nice reminder of the work that we're doing and why we do it. And now for some good news. E&E News reports that after years of, quote, fluttering around a decision, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has finally extended Endangered Species Act protections to California's Hermes copper butterfly. As part of the listing, the agency designated about 35,000 acres in San Diego County as critical habitat. The insect's habitat loss is primarily due to wildfires that have ravaged California's forests in the past two decades, but the new protections should help protect prime habitat that remains. The designation is the result of a long legal fight led by the Center for Biological Diversity, which first asked Fish and Wildlife to protect the butterfly in 2004. 
And that's it for this episode. Do let us know what you think about the podcast. Leave us a review wherever you are listening to this. That's the best way for new listeners to find us. And of course, send us an email with suggestions, comments, complaints. Podcast at westernpriorities.org is where to send that. I'm Aaron Weiss. And I'm Kate Gretzinger. On behalf of the whole team here at Center for Western Priorities, thanks to the folks at Valle de Oro for sharing their stories. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. And Happy New Year. <laughs>